So just five years ago, in the fall of 2007, when I came here to Scottsdale Bible Church, I will never forget my very first elder meeting. Our elders are the spiritual leaders of the church. They're the ones who I report to. They are selected by our congregation for four-year terms to really be the spiritual leaders of our church. And in the very first elder meeting I attended, Barry Asmus, who's one of our lead elders, walked in and had under his arms these four pads. And he says, Ben, these are knee pads. We're going to get on our knees every single elder meeting, and we're going to pray. I think Jamie had been here about a year, if I recall correctly. And at one of our elder meetings, he had called me and said he really wanted to show us all a video. And I put it in our worship center, even though it was just going to be 12 elders, because I wanted the elders to have the experience of being where we regularly worship and to watch this video on prayer and revival. And we sat and we watched Dr. J. Edwin Orr, and it was a powerful time. And it was just amazing. I just took everybody back about the power of prayer. We watched it and we hit our knees and started praying more specifically for revival in our church. That night uh, was the first night of many that we were bringing out the pads and just praying for our church and what God had in store for us next. After that, we, we broke away as an elder team and, and had a full day retreat talking about evangelism, talking about um, outreach. My prayer time with God personally during that time was one, first of all, of repentance realizing that I did not care for lost people the same way he cares for lost people. Jeff and I were very motivated um, at that point. So we'd walk up and down the neighborhood and, and be looking at the houses and think, oh Lord, please, could you please grant salvation for these people? Because we care about them. They're our neighbors. So we began opening our home for people who just cared about prayer and about the lost that we would hear about it and want to join in. We saw people get excited about what their part could be in it, excited about what Scottsdale Bible Church's part could be. So we appointed some elders to draft a white paper of all things, but it was more than that. It was really our declaration on how we desperately want Scottsdale Bible Church to go from a church that has an evangelism department to a church that has an evangelism culture. Uh, Jamie went back and developed a whole plan of, of how we can change and how we can uh, become more of that church that we really want to be. But these buildings are old um, and the functional obsolescence is showing. And so we hired a group to come take a look at our campus and they came to us uh, over a couple day period after they had finished all their work and they showed us what they thought would be a way to maximize our campus. When they put some of the initial plans on the table, Many of the elders, many of our senior staff were blown away. My first reaction was, wow, this is incredible. And how neat would it be to see that here at our campus? As elders, we've been on this journey for a long time. And I want for my brothers and sisters to take the journey with us. A journey we're calling Compelled by Grace in which we're inviting the entire congregation to, to not just talk about how we're going to resource this vision, but even more importantly then from that, how we're all going to play a part. Ask God about how he's going to use you and where do you fit? Where's your role as God's the Bible? I've gotten to know so many people in our church and how much they love this church. 
and how much this church means to them and their family and how it's been such a significant encouragement to them in their own spiritual walk. You know, it takes time to get one's mind and heart and soul around Compelled by Grace because it's a big vision. But our God is so much bigger. I'm confident in this. At the end of the day, this is God's vision for our future. He's setting us up for the next 50 years of ministry here in Scottsdale. We'll make a dent in this 87% of Scottsdale that's lost and is not going to church. And we will see thousands of people come to Christ one life at a time. That's a very significant video that we showed you because uh, that really is the, the very, a synopsis of the journey that your elders have been on. It's really been a five and a half, six year journey uh, ever since uh, I started my ministry here in 2007. So we're going to be trying to give you snippets of that throughout this series because, you know, somebody said to me the other day, they said, gosh, Jamie, a $23 million capital campaign, like that's huge, even for a church as big as Scottsdale Bible. And I said, yeah, it is. And, and, and I believe the resources are out there. But then I said to this person, I said, but you know, my fear in this series has nothing to do with whether or not we could raise $23 million or not. That's not the issue. Uh, my fear is whether or not our entire church will engage God or not when it comes to what our elders are leading us in. In other words, our elders, as you've seen, have been on a journey, a journey of prayer, a journey of grace over the last five years. And we're trying to communicate last month in this exactly where God has led us to and ask, simply asking you to ask God yourself as, a, as a, an attender or a member of Scottsdale Bible Church, Lord, what are you doing in this place and how are you guiding me? See, my fear is not about resources or anything like that. My fear is do we all have the guts to engage God, look him in the face and say, God, what are you doing in our church and what are you saying to me? Because I'm convinced if we all do that, then we're all going to be very unified and move together and I think resources will be provided. And so that's totally the gist of this series that we're starting here today. So with that said, and Venue and Cactus who are dialed in right now as well, let's all pray together and ask God to bless our time in His Holy Word. Father, one of the things that Christians have believed now for 2,000 years is that You have spoken to us, You have moved in our midst, and that the primary ways you have spoken is through your Son, Jesus Christ, whom is our Savior, and then also through your Word, which is the written truth that we rally around and that unifies us. So I pray as we open your book here shortly that, God, you might speak to our hearts and our minds. And Lord, truly, as we keep saying, almost like a scratch CD, God, would you compel us by your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So I want you to pretend right now that you and I are having a cup of coffee at your favorite haunt, whether it be Starbucks or a, another place that you go to. And as your pastor, I ask you a very simple but very personal question. And I ask you the question, what drives you the most in your life right now? That out of all the things, all the internal motivations that you could have, what is it that drives you the most? What is it that gets you out of bed? What is it that gets you going through the day? What is it that's driving you in your life? 
I, I think for many Christians today, there would be a myriad of answers. I think some Christians, if they were being very honest with themselves, would look at me and say, well, Jamie, the economy crashed in 2009, and I'm still recovering from that, and you need to know on my radar every day, the biggest thing is money. That what's driving me right now is to make sure I save for my retirement, get through the day with my budget, make sure I provide for my family. Uh, money provides a sense of well-being. I just got to tell you, Pastor, it's money that's driving me right now. And I thank you for your honesty. I think in a highly driven business environment like Scottsdale, some would say to me, well, Jamie, it's not really money. I got enough of that. But I got to tell you, I'm still being empowered in my life by prestige, fame, influence, and power. I'm like at the height of my career. I'm just starting to take off. I got that latest promotion. And what's really driving me right now, nine to five, Monday through Friday, is just the more and more influence and leadership and control in my everyday world. And I thank you for your honesty. I think some people would say, well, Jamie, you know what? It's people that's driving me right now. I'm more of a humanitarian in my life. I love to volunteer for nonprofits. I love to go down to neighborhood ministry. I love to pour into people, whether it be on my job or through my church. It's, it's people that gets me out of bed every day. I mean, there are numerous cultural motivators, whether it be money or influence or people that we see all the time around us that have infiltrated our hearts and they're fine in and of themselves. And let's be honest, some of those things drive us. Those are the things that get us out of bed. But if I don't miss my guess, there'd be some of you in this Starbucks conversation that would say, ah, Jamie, those are all very unspiritual motivations. No, I'm driven by more heavenly pursuits. You see, I'm driven by, by the eternal reward that I'm eventually going to get from God someday. I went to a Bible study, and I realized that what I do in the power of the Spirit this side of heaven is going to be rewarded in the next life. And, and so I can't wait to get one of those well-done, good and faithful servants and so every day I wake up, and that's what drives me. I, I think there'd be others who'd say, Jamie, I've heard you talk about the church a lot. And I got to tell you, I'm fired up about the church. And it's the mission of the church that drives me, reaching lost people, evangelizing, equipping the saints, sending ministry, mission, missionaries, serving in ministries. That's what gets me all fired up in my life. And then there might even be others of us who would say, nah, none of those things drive me. It's fear, a healthy fear of God. I live a very rigid life. I have quiet times every day. I tithe 10% on the gross. I am not going to be found asleep at the wheel because I have a healthy fear of God and that wakes me up and gets me going every day. Folks, think about the myriad of motivations of things that can drive us. Everything from the cultural motivators like money, fame, power, influence, or people. Everything from the spiritual motivations like heavenly rewards, the church, or even fear. There's so many things living in your soul right now that you can choose from to drive you. And my question to you today, my question, Cactus Campus and venue to you, is what is driving you the most? If you and I were having a personal conversation and I said something has to take first place residence in your soul, what would it be? Because here's the deal. No matter what you would choose out of all the things that I mentioned and even more, what you need to know this morning is that the Bible comes along and it says that out of all the things that we've talked about that could motivate us, none of these things, not power, not influence, not people, not money, not heavenly rewards, not fear, nor even the church should be the most potent and powerful driving force in your soul. 
None of these things. God has reserved something else for you and I to choose to be driven by, and I want to share that with you today. So if you brought a Bible with you, I want you to open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 11 through 21. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can look up here on the screen as always, and I'm going to share with you real quickly here the context of this book so that we're all on the same page as to what's happening in 2 Corinthians 5. Here's what you need to know about the church in Corinth back then. It was a very experiential, emotionally driven church. Some of you have been in churches like that. We know from our study of the book, from the books of, written to Corinth in the Bible, as well as what we understand about Corinth back then, which is where modern day Greece is right now, that this church had overdosed on what we call the sign gifts. They were really into tongues and the interpreting of tongues and words of knowledge and prophecy and miracles. They were into a lot of ecstatic experiences. This was a church that just lived for the next experience of God, the next experience with people. And as a result of this, this overdose on experience and emotion, this had also led to a lot of sin in the lives of the people in this church, as well as disunity in the church. You see, an overdose on emotions and experiences can do this. It can make us sloppy. It can take us out of balance. Passion overtakes reason. And before you know it, we become self-obsessed on the next experience that we can have rather than on the truth of God himself. And so Paul is writing to this church in Corinth in order to straighten them out in these areas. And in this section of the letter, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is sharing with this church, he's kind of like at the mountaintop of what he wants to share with them, what should be the driving force of their lives. What it should be that gets them out of bed and gets them going in their lives. And it's my first point this morning, and here it is, and that is that God's love for us must be our primary drive in life. Man, if you don't hear anything else today, guys, hear this. God's love for us must be our primary drive in life. Before any and all of the motivations that I just mentioned, whether it be money, power, people, or prestige, or even spiritual things like reward, fear, or the church, God's love for you needs to be that which permeates your soul more than anything else. And so if you don't believe me, look at how Paul says this in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5. Look at your Bible or look up here on the screen. He says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And so don't miss, Paul clearly tells us here what should be our primary motivation in life. And if you come to church over the next four weeks, you're not going to be able to escape this verse. We got it plastered all over our campus. We got it plastered on your bulletin. We got it plastered on even a little pen that we gave you. For Christ's love compels us. Interesting. Not our love for him, though we should have it, but his love for us. That's what drives us the most. You know, it's fascinating. That word compel there, this is the New International Version translation, is translated in, in a lot of different ways in different versions. If you've got a King James Bible, it says, for Christ's love constraineth me. If you have a New American Standard Bible or the English Standard Version, it says, for Christ's love controls us. 
And yet the reason I chose the NIV for just this verse is because I think that's actually the best translation here. Because this word literally means to hold together, to compress in order to empower. Isn't that interesting? To, to hold something together and compress it, to keep it all contained, as to empower it even more. It's more of a motivational term than it is a directional term. And so I like how Colin Cruz from the Pillar New Testament commentary says it. He says, and I quote, a pressure applied not so much to control, but is to cause action. And so the word picture here behind this word is that God's love has come all over Paul from all directions to the point that it's compressing his life, but it's compressing him in such a way that he's now motivated to move forward and onward in everything that he does. And it's a powerful, powerful word and image. And so what Paul is saying here, let's not miss it, is that the fuel that he runs on, the batteries that recharge him, the food that feeds his soul, the power base that he functions from, is nothing more and nothing less than God's personal and intimate love for him that, as we're going to see, he finds in Jesus Christ. So when Paul would make a decision for his life, whether it be financial, vocational, or personal, God's love was his primary criteria. When he was responding to a hurt from somebody, from someone else around him, God's love would tell him what course of action to take. When he was dealing with difficult people, which Paul did like you and I do today, it was God's love that told him when to be gently sunny or when to be prophetically stormy. Can you relate? It was always God's love that was the motivating force for Paul's life. And it didn't matter the situation, whether he was at work with his family, at church with his friends, or involved in the civic world. It was God's love and his grace, because God's love flows from his grace, that motivated Paul to be sure he was compelled by grace. And this was his primary motivation. And the point is obvious for you and me. And again, if you don't hear anything else today, this is what I want you to hear. Our lives must be the same. Go back to that Starbucks conversation. No matter what you admit is the driving force of your life, God comes along and joins that conversation and he says, I get it. I get it that it's money. I get it that it's influence. I get it that it's humanitarian. I get it that it's heavenly rewards. I get all those things. And in and of themselves, those things are not wrong. But God comes along and says, in joining the conversation, I want my personal love for you to be that which goes the deepest, that which really gets you going in this life. And this is where it gets tricky, folks. Because the reality is, is that those other motivations that are kind of riding tandem in our soul are not bad motivations. They even aren't. I mean, it's not wrong to be motivated by money. Uh, Paul the Apostle himself says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 that if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. So, so Paul's basically saying that you got to work at life. you got to provide for yourselves. You have to have a sense of security. And if you do, you're going to be taken care of. Being motivated by money is not a bad thing. Being motivated by influence and leadership and even power is not a bad thing. 1 Timothy 3 verse 1 says that if a man aspires to the office of overseer, which is elder, the highest position within the church, he says it's a fine work he desires to do. 
And certainly it's not wrong to be motivated by heavenly rewards or the mission of the church or even a healthy fear of God. But please see, even though these things are not in and of themselves wrong, what the Bible says, what Paul affirms here, is that if those are the things that are driving you, and the personal love and grace of God is not deeper than all those things, then those things will not carry you the distance. Not at all. At the end of the day, they will not prove faithful friends. They will disappoint you in the end. The only thing that your soul can survive on in the long haul is the intimate and personal love of God that he has for you. And as we're going to see, comes to us in Christ. Anything else just isn't going to cut it. You know, as many of you know, I, I've been a Christian now for about 32 years. I'm 49. I wasn't raised in the church, but when I was 17, 18 years old, somebody shared the gospel with me, and I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. And it's funny, when I do an audit of the last, say, 30 years of my life, maybe you can relate to this. I see myself going through different stages where I was motivated by certain things at each different stage of my life. So, for instance, when I first got saved, I got to tell you, I was very motivated by fear. And I don't mean that negatively. I mean in a healthy way. I had done my share of sinning before I came to Christ. And I mean a lot of sinning. I was in full rebellion mode through most of high school. And so when Jesus Christ finally grabbed my heart, I had a lot of repenting to do. I had a lot of things that, quite frankly, God wanted me to jettison out of my life and certain things that he wanted to include in my life. And so I had a lot of fear of backsliding, fear of going back to that world, and I was motivated to repent and get right. And a lot of it was a healthy fear. That lasted about two years. And then I entered into a season in about the mid-80s and early 90s as I went through my seminary education and then into my first pastorate. And some of you will relate to this. I went into a heavy people-pleasing, God-pleasing mode. As a young man, I was determined now to prove myself worthy of being used by God and worthy to be a leader of the church. And so I got a great seminary education and I did an internship at a premier church in the United States. And then I went to a small struggling Baptist church that I knew was going to be growing soon in Detroit and started pouring into that. And all through that time, I was very concerned, do people like me? Am I doing well? Am I able to cut this? What does dad think? I wonder what God thinks. And I was in this heavy people-pleasing, God-pleasing mode. Again, not bad. It's just that I don't know if I could have lived there forever. Because you see, then something clicked around the mid-1990s for me that I think you're going to be glad clicked in me. And that's that I was serving as an associate pastor under a wonderful senior pastor in Detroit. And he noticed that I was motivated by some residual fear and that I was motivated by a lot of people-pleasing and God-pleasing. And he said to me one day, do you realize that God loves you? And that whether you succeed or not, whether your kids turn out great or not, whether you write a book or not, whether or not dad thinks you're a success or not, he said it really doesn't matter. What matters the most is that you wake up every day and are motivated by the fact that God has saved you that he loves you, and that he smiles on you because you're his in Christ. Is that going to be what drives you or not? And that made sense to me. 
And I started a journey in the mid-90s that eventually led me to a point that by the late 90s, I was starting to experience and understand God's love for me in such profound ways that honestly, I just didn't care if I was a success anymore or not. I didn't care about all the things that I tended to care about. What I cared about was understanding God and knowing Him more than anything else. As my friend Larry Crabb would say, he would say that I was starting to live a God-obsessed life. And that's what started to drive me. And it was all motivated out of his love for me. You see, God's love for you must be the primary drive in your life. Or all the other stuff is going to frustrate you and eventually let you down. So I ask you, church, are you committed to this? As we start this journey together of asking ourselves, can we be compelled by his grace? Can we be generous enough and involved in us to really unite as a church and move together in the next 40, 50 years together? The answer will hinge on where your heart is in being compelled by whatever. And I'm telling you today, I'm challenging you today to be compelled by nothing short of his grace and love for you. Now, once you understand this, once you start salivating after this, the obvious question that flows out of this is, well, where is this love most seen and how do I get it, right? I mean, I know lots of Christians that are saved. They attend church. They go to Bible study. They, they might even give regularly, all that other stuff. But really, the, the love of God hasn't quite permeated their heart, at least through external manifestation, as we might like to see. And so even for Christians, it's a good question to ask, well, okay, I'm saved, but how do I experience God's love on a more regular basis? And this is our second point, and this is so key to the text here, and that is that God's love is most clearly seen and experienced, now here it is, church, in the cross of Jesus Christ. Some of you weren't expecting that. God's love, I'm telling you, is most clearly seen and experienced in the cross of Jesus. It doesn't come to you in a quiet time, doesn't come through singing a song in church, doesn't come through walking through a nice field or seeing beautiful mountains, though you might have experience with God with all of those things. No, what the Bible makes clear is that we experience God the most when we get in touch with and lay our lives before the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verses 14 again, then 18 and 19 and verse 21. This time, let's go back to the English Standard Version, and I think you'll catch on to what he's saying here. He says, For the love of Christ controls or compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died, underline that, one has died for all, and therefore all have died. Then skip down to verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Then verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is not as complicated as it might look. They're using a lot of $10 theological words here, but once you get by those words, this is not complicated stuff. It's just very profound stuff. 
The best way to understand these verses is to focus on that four times repeated word, reconciliation, in verses 18 and 19 there, reconciliation. Because that's a jam-packed word that literally means the restoration of a relationship between enemies. Isn't that awesome? The restoration of a relationship between enemies. So picture the old Hatfields and McCoys. They were enemies. If they became reconciled, that relationship would be restored. Or picture a marriage that has gone south. They're separated, they're filing for divorce, but if by some miracle there could be a reconciliation, then the relationship is now restored. You get the idea behind this word. And so used in light of God, which is just being used here, it's simply saying that all of us are born out of relationship with God. Do we all understand that? You're never going to hear that on Oprah. You're never going to get that on a PBS special. The reality is, is that you were born a sinner separated from God. And no matter how cute babies are, no matter how wonderful your children and grandchildren are, God says, sinner separated from me. That's how God looks at every little baby when they're born. He loves them. He thinks they're cute. But he has a big vision for their lives as he's had for your life. And that is that because, because sin separates, it's because we're born in sin, something has to happen in order to reconcile us to God. Does that make sense? And so the whole journey of life spiritually is to discover, we hope that God is the one chasing us, discover our salvation in Jesus Christ because get this, the way God has reconciled us is through giving Jesus for us. It's through Jesus' death which wasn't just a normal death, but the death of the second person of the Trinity bearing the sin of the world upon himself it's through Jesus' death that God reconciles us to himself. So look again at verse 21. It says, For our sake he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, because he was the second person of the Trinity, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians would go on to call this substitutionary atonement. Simply put, Jesus atoned for our sins. He was our substitute so that we didn't have to pay the penalty of death and hell away from God from all eternity because of our sin. Jesus paid that penalty for us. And when we accept him and invite him into our life as Lord and Savior, the Bible says at that moment you are reconciled to God. He has now forgiven you of all sin, past, present, and future. And yet we're not done, folks. What Paul wants us to see more than anything else here, and this is the point, is that it's in the giving of Jesus' life, of Jesus going to that cross, that defines for us the epitome of love. Man, many Christians don't realize this. It was God's love that sent Jesus to the cross. God's love, nothing else. It was not duty. It was not obligation. It wasn't the reluctant meeting of our needs. I mean, this is how you and I love. We love and go like this. Well, okay, I guess I'll forgive you. That's how we love, right? Okay, I guess I'll let it go and I hope I don't see you for the next year. That's how we forgive. See, and we think sometimes God is that way, that God's still up in heaven kind of angry and just going, well, okay, I guess I'll forgive him. I'm God. That's what I do. That's not what he did. No, it was full out, 
passionate, personal love that sent Jesus to this earth to die in your place. That's how much God loves you. And Jesus affirmed this when he was on this earth, when he said in John 15, 13, isn't this a great phrase? He says, greater love than no one has in this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And boy, is that a jam-packed statement. So how do we experience the love of God? How do we know the love of God on a personal level? Listen, church, by ourselves going to the cross and understanding and experiencing what Jesus Christ has done for you, seeing yourself as a sinner who, if it wasn't for Jesus, would be facing a Christless eternity. And then through going to the cross and realizing how much he loves you, you personalize that love in such a way that it becomes more important than anything. You know, something back in the 90s when I was starting to get in touch with this helped me with this. At that time, I, I had three children. They were all born from 90 to 94, names Hannah, Abby, and Paul, two girls and a boy. Around the mid-90s, somebody shared with me and trying to help me understand what God did for us by sending Jesus to this cross and how it was all about love. He said, Jamie, imagine if there was another baby, say, on the other side of the country, that needed a new liver or a new heart or a new lung, and they wrote you a letter saying, you know what, um, out of love for me, would you give us your daughter Hannah, or would you give us your daughter Abby, or would you give us your son Paul, and give us their life so that my kid could live? I mean, what an insane thing to even think of, right? Like, who would ever write a letter like that? Let alone, how would you ever receive a letter like that? I mean, if that came to me by email, I couldn't hit delete quicker. How about you? If somebody asked me to give up one of my children so that another child could live, I, I don't know. I, I, that would be an easy one for me because I love my children. And yet think about it conversely. If somebody in an insane moment would actually give up their child so that another child could live, couldn't one see that as like the greatest act of love ever known to humankind? See, that's exactly what God did for us. God gave up his son so that you and I might have life. And that's core to the Christian truth claim. That's core to our Christian experience. And, you know, I, I've had people push back on this over the years. They said, yeah, but God gave up the perfect Son of God, second person of the Trinity, whom he knows he was going to see in heaven like three days later. So big whip, God gave us his son. Oh, I love when people say that to me. Not only are you a heretic, right, hit by lightning, but what I want to say at that time to people is, you know what? Think about it this way. I could say the same thing to you about your kid. I mean, if your kid's saved, you're going to see him or her in heaven, right? So give me your kid. Give your kid for that other kid. Because you know what? You're going to see him in heaven someday. Big whip. But you see, it changes as soon as we personalize it like that, Right? So we put it like that, we go, well, uh, yeah, uh, no. That's what we say. And rightly so. You see, God did give up his son, and he did know he was going to see him in heaven again. But check this out. The Trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that had never been separated for all of eternity, became separated on that cross. God the Father turned his face from Jesus. Do you remember that famous statement? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father turned his face on his son as his son bore the sin of the whole world upon himself. And for the first time ever in the history of all eternity, the Trinity was broken. 
only to be again united once again as Jesus rose from the grave by the power of God the Father. But no greater act of love will ever you see in your life, will you ever maybe have the opportunity to be exposed to than what Jesus Christ did for you. Are you seeing this, church? You know, when people say to me today, yeah, 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 I've accepted Christ, so what? What's next? I sit there and say to myself, do you have any idea what you just said? If you dare to say that you've accepted Christ, what you're saying there is that you're admitting that you're a sinner who is in need of massive grace, that you're laying down all rights to yourselves because now you're realizing that Jesus and Jesus only is the one who can save you, and that it's through his cross that the greatest act of love has now entered into your life. And how do you then tap into that love each moment of each day? Now listen, it's the same thing, by going back to the cross. That every time you sin and mess up, and you do, every time you do, you don't say, well, hey, water off under a bridge, water off a duck's back, you know, no big deal. No, you say, the only way that God could forgive me for that, the only way, the only way he even wants to smile at me right now is through what his son did for me on the cross. And that in and of itself is the greatest act of love that I will ever experience. Guys, this is so real. I, I can't even tell you how real this is. I, I, I want, I'm reticent to, to say what I'm about to say just because I, I don't know. Look, I, I struggle with most of the things you guys struggle with. There's nothing that disqualifies me from the ministry. Don't hear me saying that. But there are lots of things I struggle with all throughout the week. I struggle with the flesh. I struggle with anger. I struggle with saying things I shouldn't say. I struggle with flying off the handle. I struggle with thinking thoughts I shouldn't think. You can fill in the gap. I struggle with lots of things. I'm just as human as you guys. And so there's plenty of mornings where I'll wake up, and honestly, before I get out of bed, I'm already down on myself. I'm already saying, how in the world can God use me? I mean, you would think, Jamie, that 32 years into this thing, you'd be a little farther along. How can God use you if your church only knew? And there's all these whispers from Satan that are coming at me, just saying you have no right to be pastoring the church you're pastoring, let alone call yourself a Christian, you big fake. Those are the thoughts going through my head at 5.30 in the morning. And you know what gets me to put my foot out of bed and come to be the pastor of this church, let alone to follow Jesus Christ? I'm telling you, I immediately think of the cross. I immediately say, yeah, but March 11th, 1981, the light went out of my head, Satan, and I understood on that day that Jesus Christ died for me, and he died for every one of my sins, past present and future. So the only way I'm going to get through today is to be compelled by his grace. Amen? Amen. Compelled by his grace. And so I'm just telling you, this is very real stuff. I live this each moment of each day. When I ask myself, why should God forgive me? It's not because I'm sorry. It's not because I'm trying to live a good life. It's not because I'm a minister. And it's not because I've raised three pretty good kids. That has nothing to do with it. The only reason God forgives me is because of what Jesus did for me. Amen? That's the only reason. And that, by the way, it's the only reason he forgives you. And yet the cool thing about this, now last under this one, is that there's nothing then that you can do, nothing short of a final rejection of Jesus, 
which is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. There is nothing you can do, the Bible says, that can separate you from this love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that's where it now becomes real, right? Because I know all of you have a sin that you haven't told anybody about. Almost all of you. You can hear a pin drop right now, right? <laughs> Almost all of you have something in your life, whether in the past or the present, where if others were to find out about it, you would at the very least be red in the face or at the very most go, I can't believe they know. But you see, God knows. And the cool thing is that is in Christ, he forgives you. In Christ, he says, used to be as red as scarlet, it's now white as snow. He says, I've thrown it in the sea of forgetfulness as far as the east is from the west, which is an infinite line. I've thrown that sin away. And you sit there and go, can it really be? Can it really be? The answer is yes. He loves you that much. And his love is seen in the forgiveness of your sin, in the cross of Jesus Christ. So track where we've come from this morning. We've established that the most personal, powerful motivation of a human heart is the love of God and the grace found in Christ. Where do we see that love and grace? In the cross. And then lastly, with this we're done. God's love then in Christ, once this grabs your soul, motivates you to do three things. And we're going to list these rather quickly. First is that it motivates you to live for him. Verse 15 of our text says that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died, that's the cross, and was raised again. And so the reality is, is that once you understand how much God loves you, I'm telling you, you have no problem living for him. And see, this is the secret to the Christian life. You right now wake up and say, I got to live for Jesus, live for Jesus, get it right, do right, be right, be good, make sure I don't do this, and make sure I avoid this, and make sure I focus on this, and have a quiet time, and go to Bible study, and tithe 10% of the gross, and make sure I don't do this, and that's how most of us live. And God says, you know what, stop. If you just understood before your foot hit the ground that I love you, and that I care for you, and that my grace has saved you, and allow that to drive you, you're not going to have any problem this day living for him. Amen? And we know that because you guys do it in your personal friendships all the time. Raise your hand if you got a friend here today, even a close friend. Raise your hand. We'll pray for the rest of you. So, so most of us have somebody in our life that is a good friend. Now let me ask you a question. Thinking of your good friend right now, are they your good friend because they don't love you, they never pour into your life, and they have no care for you at all? Of course not. Most likely, you have a good friend in your life because they love you, and they accept you for who you are, they get you to some degree, and they care about you. And as a result of all of that, now track this, you're drawn to them. As a result of all that, you say, I want to hang out with this dude, or I want to hang out with this lady, because against the odds, they love me. And so you want to be with them. That makes sense. God's the same. God says, you're never going to want to be with me. You're never going to get out of obligation mode until you understand how much I love you. But conversely, once you get that, you're just going to want to hang out with me all the time. In fact, you're going to want to live for me because grace motivates us to do that. Second thing, notice that grace then motivates us to seek out lost people. I don't have time to read the text, but Paul will go on to make it very clear here that once grace gets in your heart and mind, once you understand that God's love really motivates you, that at that point you're going to realize you're an ambassador for Christ, 
and you're going to realize that there's lots of lost ones out there that you now care about because they haven't found the same grace you have found. They haven't been introduced to this love. In other words, God's grace motivates us toward caring about lost people. I don't have time to tell you the whole journey today, but I got to tell you, that elder retreat we took three or four years ago in which we talked about evangelism in Scottsdale Bible Church, I simply asked the elders one key question that forever was a game changer. I said to the elders, I know you guys cry over a few things. I know that if your kid goes south, you're probably going to shed a tear over that. If you get fired at work, you might silently shed some tears over that. I said, all men cry over something. I said, when was the last time any of you guys ever shed a tear for a lost person in Scottsdale? When was the last time you ever shed one single tear for the fact that 87% of Scottsdale doesn't go to church and most of them are facing a Christless eternity? And the chairman of our elders now, Jeff Goble, said that that grabbed him so firmly that God forever changed him with that question. See, I was asked that question back in the mid-90s when I was having this grace transformation. My senior pastor said, Jamie, was the last time you ever cried for a lost person? I was like, well, Never. And he said, you know, do you really care about lost people? I said, not really. I said, I care more about my computer than a lost person. I, I care more about my family, and I, I want to help saints become better saints. But you know what? Getting involved with lost people is messy, and I was there once, and I really don't want to be involved in that again. I didn't become a minister to be an evangelist. I'm not Billy Graham. Leave me alone. That's what I said to my senior pastor. And I'll never forget, he said to me, I can't wait for grace to grab your life. He said, I can't wait for you to get out of this people-pleasing mode in which you're going to start to understand the grace and love for God, and then you just might care for lost people. And then he said this to me, and this was my game changer. He said, I dare you, Jamie, I dare you to ask God to break your heart for lost people. I said, I don't want to pray that prayer. I was like, that might come true. And about a week later, I started praying that. And somewhere around the mid to late 90s, God broke my heart for a lost city of Detroit and then a lost London, Ontario, where I had my first senior pastor, a lost Chagrin Valley, where I just came from, and now a lost Scottsdale. There's a day that goes by that I don't see a lost person out in culture, whether it be one of my neighbors, a service provider, a friend, or just sitting in a restaurant. I think to myself, if we don't tell them, if we don't care for them, they're never going to hear. It really, I mean, it depends on Scottsdale Bible Church. We're the largest, most influential church in Scottsdale, if not one of them in Phoenix. God has blessed us so greatly. If we do not turn our sights to a lost community, which, by the way, is more lost than most communities in the United States demographically, then who will? But you see, we'll never turn our sights to them unless we're compelled by grace. Give me a head nod that you understand that. I'm not asking you to muster it up. I'm not asking you to fake it. I'm asking you to ask God Oh, God, give me a heart for lost people. And then when you do, duck, because he's going to do that. And then lastly, and with this, we're done. When you're compelled by grace, you will live a life of profound generosity. 2 Corinthians 8, just a few chapters later, begins this way. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. There's that grace again. The grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So there it is. I, I, I said a while back, and I meant it. I said at the beginning of our message, and we'll end with this. I said to you guys that my greatest fear as we look to do a capital campaign is not that we wouldn't reach our goal of 23 million. That is really not my fear. 
my fear is that we won't latch on to the grace of God. Because I'm being a little sneaky here. See, I know if we latch on to the grace of God, you're going to live for him. I know if we latch on to the grace of God, you're going to have a passion for lost people and you're going to see the absolute reasonable sense of everything that we're suggesting our church needs to do. You'll see it. You'll understand a campus redesign so that we can have more people. You understand multi-site. You understand church planting. You understand missions. If God grabs you with his grace, you'll get all of that, and you'll say amen. And then I also understand that if God grabs you with his grace, you will give generously. I know that because he's done it in me. I'm the stingiest person in the whole world. I'll tell you that right now. I am. I, I should have been born Dutch. I'm so stingy. I'm Danish, and so I'm off by just a couple of countries. But when I got saved, I'm telling you, it was so, when somebody explained tithing to me when I first got saved, I was like, you got to be kidding, 10%? I'm like, that's an outrageous amount of money. That really is in the Bible? I mean, I'm telling you, that was a hard discipleship point for me. And that's just tithing. As you all know, God wants us to do more. But since God grabbed my heart through grace, I'm telling you, I love writing checks. I love giving. I ask God to bless me more so I can be more of a blessing. Why? Because it's not mine, it's his. And I want to be generous. God's changed my heart there, and he can change yours. But it's all about his grace. It's all about being compelled by his grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for all that you have given us in this life. And Lord, I mean all that you've given us in Christ. God, I think of Ephesians 1 verse 3 that I think of so often that says that we've been blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ, in the heavenlies. And I thank you, God, for that. And God, I pray that as we embark on a journey here as a church that it goes way beyond just resources, that Lord really is about where our hearts are and where our focus is and what the vision is of our church. I pray, God, that you'd unite all of us. And that, Lord, as you unite us, would you speak to our hearts individually and, Lord, more than anything, continue to hound us with your personal, powerful, life-changing love that's found in Christ and his cross. That's my simple prayer. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.